welcome to a new episode of Talking Law with me, Sally Penny, MBE. I'm a barrister at Kenworthy's Chambers, the Joint Vice Chair of the Association of Women Barristers and the founder of Women in the Law UK. Do please visit womeninthelawuk.com to find out more about what we do there from regular webinars covering all aspects of professional development, from financial well-being to career advancement and career development. I'm excited to tell you there are two more books available in the Penny on Law series, so do search for them on Amazon. The Talking Law series, book three is now out, and book four is now out, Talking Law and Future Skills. Don't miss it. Today I'm talking law with Martin Shaw, a man who created one of the best-loved legal characters on the small screen, BBC One's Judge John Deed. Martin talks passionately about his role and why he is so proud to be a patron of the Kalisher Trust, an organisation which works to inspire and inform the next generation of legal professionals through advocacy training, internships, and so much more. You can find out more about them at thekalashatrust.org. I started my interview by asking Martin why he chose acting as his career, and if he had ever considered law. (laughs) Well, why acting and not law is perfectly simple to answer, I think. It's because there is not a great deal of intellectual vigour required in acting, <laughs> so uh, not being terribly good at school and a broad range of subjects, uh, I don't think law was was ever an option for me anyway. Um, acting uh, came about, I think it's because I had, like a lot of people, two inspirational teachers. One was my English teacher, um, and the other was my drama teacher. And I didn't enjoy school. I I felt oppressed by it. And I think education methods were were very different in 1959, which was when uh, I started grown-up education, um, secondary school, that is, after the 11-plus exam. And English and drama were the only two things that I was good at. And I had a sort of a natural acumen, I think, for English, which just just came to me. Uh, When we were studying Shakespeare in class, I, I couldn't understand what the difficulty was, or why people couldn't understand it, or indeed why they didn't like it. And so I just sort of naturally gravitated to what I found easier. Um, as far as maths is concerned, that was a kind of numerical dyslexic. You know, it just it made no sense to me, and, and it doesn't even now. Yeah. I, after some school productions, I was offered a scholarship to the drama school in Birmingham, um, unfortunately, my parents refused to let me do that. And so I worked in, in an office for two years and carried on doing semi-professional theatre, which was street theatre. Oh, right. So now we're talking, oh, I would say around about 1960, 1961. And in Birmingham, which is where I come from, there were bomb sites everywhere and the, the scars of the war were manifest. And... So my school drama teacher had formed a group called the Pied Pipers, 
um, and we performed Commedia dell'arte character. We Commedia dell'arte characters, Harlequin, Columbine, and, and so on. We would meet twice a week and discuss a rough scenario. We would improvise it. And then all of us played an instrument of some sort. And those that didn't use kazoos, you know, yeah. we would go to these bomb sites. We were called the Pied Pipers because we gathered around as many children as possible and they would follow us and adults too. And then we would settle on one of the bomb sites and we would perform an improvised story, which we already knew the, the skeleton of, and uh, invite people to participate. So there was audience participation. And after a couple of years of that, I think my parents realized I wasn't going to give up. So I auditioned for Lando, at the time was the top, top London drama school, and I got in. And wow. And the rest is history. The rest is history, yeah. Wow, wow. Uh, well, I think we lawyers think acting uh, does require all sorts of it, of intelligence, uh, but uh, we're delighted to see you playing us so well in some of the roles that you've starred in since. Uh, which leads me to ask, you know, Judge John Deed, who uh, is a character that most people in law will, will know you for, how did that role come about? And perhaps what preparation did you do for the role? Because we all feel it was surrealistic. Well, I'd I long been an admirer of G.F. Newman's, Gordon, Gordon Newman, because he'd done some rather remarkable television prior to Judge John Dee. Yes. Um, and, and extremely controversial. Gordon is the kind of person who likes to stir things up and, and challenge um, the status quo. And um, so this script came along, and it was really as simple as that. My agent said, G.F. Newman sent this script. Are you interested? Yeah. I read it and thought, how, what, what a wonderful, first of all, really, what a wonderful opportunity it was to show judges as, as human, because the, 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 the normal portrayal of a judge on television or on film was was always hilariously inaccurate, even to somebody like me who knew next to nothing about it. You know, judges were always wearing spectacles perched on the end of their nose and asked who the Beatles were or what the Beatles were and so on. So it was nice to be to have the opportunity to have a a, a human being sitting on the bench. As far as the um, the preparation was concerned, it, it, it was just really about talking to people. Whenever we did the courtroom scenes, we always had a barrister, working barrister, with us all the time. And I would always yeah. ask the question, is, is this correct? Is this proper? Very often the answer would come back, no. In which case, <laughs> Gordon, Gordon and myself, we had an extraordinary creative relationship. We would then engage in furious arguments on the set, which often resulted in the in the crew sticking their hands in their pockets and walking away humming, you know, because they thought, oh, Christ, that's the end of that. But Gordon Newman is one of the most beautifully balanced people I know. He would indulge, he would engage in these extraordinary arguments, walk away, and then come back 10 minutes later and said, I thought about it. You're absolutely right. Thank you for caring so much. Uh, and we would put it right, which is not to say that some howlers didn't get through, 
much yeah. to my irritation. Um, but I think on the whole, we managed to present a reasonably accurate, if somewhat shortened version, and probably less dull version of what goes on in court. Um, yeah. And I have, I have to say, I, <clears throat> I, I loved every single moment of it. That's what came across to ask the viewer, and I ought to, you know, declare my own fan status of you and that of my mother uh, and father for that matter, neither of whom are in law, uh, but also my mother-in-law, who probably has never taken any interest in any of my legal achievements, but will be delighted to know that I'm interviewing you on this uh, on this podcast um, here. But, but I wonder, some of the episodes that I remember um, were, you know, always had adventure, the High Court judge was sneaking out and there was always quite difficult cases. Um, I remember the Jenny Seagrove character adopting a child at one stage in the series. Yeah. Um, how did some of those stories affect you? Did you really feel like, gosh, these are so realistic, or, you know, emotionally? Well, they were quite involving, um, the, some of those stories. Did you feel that? Yes, yes, I did. And how can I explain myself? When I approach a script, there is clearly an overall story. Um, and, uh, and one selects, sometimes instinctively uh, and sometimes forensically, the points that need to be put across, that the writer wants to put across. And these things are absolutely obvious. But a lot of it just comes about from being open to the situation, open to what's happening because all of that can be modified by an expression on the other artist's face or by how one oneself feels on the day. And so it really comes down to a broad framework of, of what's required and then what feelings are engendered in the moment. And those are the things which really count and I think which resonate with an audience, hopefully. Yes. It almost sounds a bit like advocacy, you know, find your best. Well, absolutely. You know, I, I often feel the same. And um, it, it's probably why I have such an attraction to the law. And, you know, maybe it's, it, it's because it, it's something that I would have enjoyed and I wish that I could do. But I, I come back to, I'm fairly slow of thought. Uh, and I don't know whether I would be capable of thinking on my feet and, 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 and switching my arguments according to the requirements in the moment. Whereas in playing a character, you can fulfill all of your dreams simply by learning and learning and learning. I mean, another thing is it takes me ages to learn a role. Uh, and the amount of stuff that you guys have to learn and I carry in your head, is just completely awesome. Uh, I, I cannot imagine how you would go through law school and your uh, and bar your your bar school and uh, it's it, it 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 just defeats my imagination it's hard enough learning a script let alone all of your stuff so you have my absolute admiration Thank you. And I think we wish more of the judges were like you. I was moaning about a grumpy judge who said, oh, it's very nice to see you, Miss Penny, just before I came to record this. 
Um, so it's, it's very nice for you to, to recognize uh, that in us. Can I move on a little and ask you about the George Gently character? Now, I, I, I'm not doing that because, you know, in between you've not been doing anything else. You're greatly involved in the theatre, which is where a lot of other people would have seen you, um, really, and other work. But um, the George Gently character, which is a policeman, well, you you can tell us a bit more about it. How did that come about? Because again, your very gentle manner and the adventures of that um, BBC series are just brilliant. Well, thank you. I um, it, That was a, another extremely happy job for, I mean, for a variety of reasons, for apart from, apart from anything else, it was 10 years of employment. Um, uh, again, that came about through um, liking the writer. Uh, and and also just enjoying the character. I mean, I think it's in a, in a way. I guess there is another similarity uh, to the law because you know, you're you're as far as I understand it, your clerk will give you a brief and you you, you do it. Yes. Um, the same thing is my agent will get something, sends it to me, and you go, "Well, I like that." And one of the great things about doing George Dentley was was working with Lee Ingleby, who was the uh, the other character in it, and it was a very rare partnership because, in my experience, it's unusual for artists to work together without ego um, impinging on the process in one way or another, and it never happened with us. And it was such a generous and useful and humorous experience that um, every day, apart from the obvious stuff like fatigue, 14 hours a day and getting up at half past five in the morning and not working till seven o'clock, uh, finishing till seven o'clock in the evening, all of that stuff. Aside from that, it was going to work to see my best mate every day, you know, and that, that doesn't happen very often. And uh, it, it, was a, it was a joyous experience. I love that term. Program and I thought it was cross generation, you know, despite it being set in the 60s. C can I ask you now about your brilliant, brilliant, brilliant involvement in the Kalisher Trust, um, which was set up by the Kalisher family, Michael Kalisher? How did you get involved in that? Because you've been involved in it for over 14 years. Uh, I mean, it comes back, I suppose, to my interest and attraction in the law and all of its uh, aspects, which I suppose is like an innate desire to see justice done in a, in a very humane form, uh, in, a, in a form, in an inclusive form, if you like. And because of that, I had wanted for 40 years to play the role of Thomas More in Man for All Seasons. Um, yeah one of our great judges. Uh, we were performing this at the Haymarket in London, and I got a letter from Lady Justice Rafferty, Anne Rafferty, and she said that she was coming to see the show with some barristers and a judge or two. <laughs> and um, she said, I, I won't, uh, I won't um, impose on you by bringing 25 people backstage, but I wonder if myself and one or two others might come and visit. Yes, I said, absolutely. Um, I had an image of what a high court judge was going to look like. <laughs> and I was, I was completely amazed when somebody who had more in common with Lauren Bacall <laughs> than, 
uh, came into my dressing room. Of course, this was this was unwrapped. Um, and from that, we we struck up an email correspondence. Uh, and as you may know, she's she's a person of the most glorious wit um, uh, and incredibly articulate. Um, and then she told me about Michael Kalisher and the the Kalisher Trust that she had been involved in setting up. Um, and as far as I, I gather, was <clears throat> excuse me, was one of the prime movers, and she started the discussion in the first place. Uh, explained to me what it was about, and that they were going to start doing performances um, and inviting people from the law to come along and pay quite a lot of money for the tickets. And and this we did, and I just I just had the most wonderful time, and from that started to learn a little about the values and aims and purposes of Kalisha. And it just went straight to my heart and probably through um, a growing friendship, through mostly through email uh, with Anne Rafferty and, and also with um, Stephen Kramer, his honor judge, Stephen Kramer. And it just became, it just became something that I loved and enjoyed doing. Then gradually, uh, uh, as it gained momentum, we would get visits from students and from pupils and from, I remember memorably, one young girl who was just on her feet for the first time and was just glowing with the, with the joy of it and, and, the, and the gratitude for what Kalatru was doing. Another young man, when we did an event at Birmingham University, was almost speechless with joy at the progress that he was making. And, and again, you know, acknowledging Kalash for, for the help that he'd received. And it just gave me a very warm and happy feeling. I do think it's, it's a, 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 a vital thing for me to be involved in. Yeah. I mean, that's the, the broadest possible outline. Um, that There is so much more. I'm sure you know yourself. Yeah. What, uh, what Kalisha does. Yes. Uh, and, you know, Kalisha's been hosting events, Q&As, and so on and so forth, um, on advocacy and various other. They've got lots coming up, and people can find out more about it um, afterwards. But yeah. its central aim is to improve um, the diversity in the law and assist yeah. where it can those from groups um, which are underrepresented, including women and minority groups, but also socioeconomic backgrounds. Who yeah. and there are there are loads of people, aren't there? But for the trust and but for scholarship money, um, they wouldn't have been able to start their careers at the bar, um, or, or just to plant the seed. And that's what's so wonderful, because from something so sad, the death of Michael Kalisher, has emerged as wonderful trust that you've been involved in, and many others, um, Lady Justice Rafferty being one of them. Did you ever envisage that it would grow so much, even in your involvement? Did you, or did you think it was going to be a short one-off? Oh, I didn't think for a moment that it would be a short one-off because of the energy of the people involved yeah. and, the, and the enthusiasm. And because it just seems obvious. You know, it seems to me that, this is my personal view, but it, I think it's, axiomatic, justice for all should include those administering and dispensing it. So, so by definition, you know, 
And the idea of um, training and mentoring advocacy skills for newly qualified barristers for advice on how to start, I mean, with A-levels and university applications, university and the bar course, mini pupillages, work experience, marshalling, all of that stuff at the beginning must be nightmarishly, nightmarishly difficult if you don't come from the privileged background of public school and, and, and top universities and, 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 and with the financial support holding you up all of the time. And I think it must be extraordinary for people who have an ambition to, to go to the criminal bar, which we desperately need expanding, as you yourself know. Yes. It's a wonderful thing for to, to broaden that talent pool, which is what Kalisha has done and continues to do. No, it is. I mean, and um, I'm a great supporter and have been for some time. Yes. Uh, can, can I ask you about some of the plays that you've been involved in, including um, the trial of Lord and Lady Macbeth at the Royal Courts of Justice? I mean, there are, <laughs> There are numerous, you know, Rumpole, um, uh, the personal call and butler in a, in a lordly dish. I noticed that um, Lady Hale has seen some of your productions as well. Um, yeah. But I, I wanted to ask you about um, uh, if you, this was one, is it 2010 when you starred in, the, in uh, Lord and Lady Macbeth at the Royal Courts of Justice? Firstly, have you appeared there before? No, I mean, I, I think actually it was probably uh, the, the first time that I'd been there. And of course, the, I mean, apart from the beauty of the building, first difficulty that we encountered was, was the acoustic, which was absolutely appalling. It's got, it's got an echo return of about four seconds, you know, but it was, it was, it was great, great fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and wearing... Anne Rafferty's full bottom wig, I thought, was such a privilege <laughs> to, <laughs> to have to return, you know, to this, this precious and expensive item uh, to be, you know, for me to wear throughout the evening and then make sure it got back to her at the end. No, it was a, it was a wonderful experience. And, and we carry on and, and hopefully will carry on. And I'll, I'll be there to the best of my ability and availability in the future. Well, I want to move on to... Um... Uh, lots of questions, really, but uh, otherwise you'd be here all day. Um, so how have you, you know, the pandemic has been pretty awful for mm. us at the bar and our solicitor colleagues and others who are taking other routes in the law. Um, but especially for actors, I sit as a trustee of a theatre and I know how awful it, the arts have been. And for lawyers, the arts are always a good escapism for the work we've got to do. So how have you kept yourself occupied, if you like, during the last 18 months, because it has been very difficult for the arts and especially actors. And then I wanted to ask what, what was next, anything that we can uh, book tickets for? Right. Well, as far as keeping myself occupied, I don't find that too difficult. But then I'm incredibly fortunate because I live in an old house in the country and I've got about four acres around me. Um, those four acres are set in, in in fields, you know, in Norfolk. Although we're under attack under attack by developers, <laughs> yeah. uh, like a lot of people. However, I had it very easy during the first lockdown, and in fact, I rather enjoyed the first lockdown because I think a lot, as as with a lot of people, 
we noticed that the skies were clearer. Um, everything was quieter. The roads were empty. There were there was more birds. There were more bees. I mean, all of the all of the cliches about nature suddenly they happened like this almost overnight. You know, and one thought, you know, this ain't too bad. Maybe the uh, maybe the apocalypse can't be that bad. I think it gradually dawned on us and myself included that this can't go on this way. And this was a, a temporary gift, but hopefully a way, you know, a, a, a picture of how things could be if we were more conscious. Yes. It was very, very difficult for the theatre, obviously. In fact, all of the arts, all of all um, film and TV productions closed down. The theatres had to close. Um, as far as occupying myself is concerned, I like DIY. I like being in the garden. I like going for works, walks, and I, um, I'm, I'm also a, a pilot, and I have a, wow. uh, I have my own old aeroplane, an old old Second World War aeroplane. Um, not one of these three million pound fighters we're talking about, you know, a little <laughs> artillery spotter. But there are there are so many things to be done, and so many things that I could do. Eventually, when things loosened up, I managed to do um, a play with half an audience. We were allowed half an audience. This is about six, seven, eight, nine months ago. And there is a, there American, an, American, an American play called Love Letters, which is the, the story of a couple from, they start, their, their, their story begins just before the war as children. And they write letters to each other, and it goes right the way through to the end of their lives. And it's the most exquisitely written piece. And so we did it at Windsor as a way of keeping the Theatre Royal at Windsor uh, alive, you know, because yeah. the, two, the two actors sat in desks on opposite sides of the stage. We were allowed to have a 50% audience wearing masks and thought that was just a way, you know, of keeping the theatre alive. Well, the reviews were extraordinary. And so the Theatre Royal Haymarket in the West End said, we'll have that. Uh, and so we did that for a while, but a very bitterly short while before the complete lockdown came. And we had to stop. And then went back when things eased up and, and finished a run at the Haymarket. Then I did a job for ITV set in Devon, uh, an, another crime series, but I was not playing the detective this time. And I was just amazed at the discipline that, uh, that was involved in doing the production. All of the, all of the crew wore masks. The cast, of course, were exempt because it wouldn't work if we were wearing masks when we were yes. filming each other. Um, but we, um, we, we took PCR tests every day uh, and uh, it was very highly disciplined. And we managed it. It can be done. Um, and what's next? I'm going to do, uh, going back to the Theatre Royal Windsor, which seems a very good, just out of town tryout place, you know, where we're going to do the Cherry Orchard. Wonderful. Wonderful, wonderful play. Um, and again, it's, uh, it, it's, it's inclusive in that we are not sticking to the pre-revolutionary Russia um, what's the word, ideas of all white and all Victorian. There, there are two black actresses who are playing two of the major roles and without any explanation, they're just there. That's it. You know, we don't have to say they are here because they are just there. 
And I think it's going to be a very exciting production. When might that be, just so people can book tickets? Uh, we're starting rehearsals. Let me work it out. We're still, well, um, you can do the maths, as I told you. I'm not good with numbers. Uh, we start rehearsals at the end of August. Um, and we're going to do, we're going to have five weeks rehearsal, which will be very, very nice to really get deeply into it. And then there, after that, there will be seven weeks at Windsor. So I would want to September, sort of, yeah, beginning of September, towards the end of September, it will be opening, I would think. Okay. Fantastic, fantastic. I always ask about people's well-being um, because uh, at the bar, we're not brilliant at it. Um, the CBA's done a lot of work on well-being and the bar well-being because we burn out. It's long hours, late briefs, um, complicated cases. So I wondered what you did for your well-being to relax. I mean, I've got a dog and I know you've got a dog too. Is that mm -hmm. one of the ways for you to switch off? One of the most important things to, for me um, occurred in around about 1971 when um, I hooked up with it again with an old friend that we, had, we hadn't seen each other for a long time. And I said, come along and, and have dinner. And he said, oh, well, I better let you know I'm a vegetarian. I said, oh, well, we'll make you a, I don't know, a cheese salad. You know, the usual 1970s idea of vegetarianism. And I started asking him questions about it. Um, and probably in common with most people at that time, trying to catch him out. But the discussion went on all night. And by about 3 a.m., <laughs> it came down to me to a very simple question, which was, given that there is sufficient proof, even back then, that you can live well and be healthy and be a vegetarian, the only reason for me to continue would be because I liked the taste of meat. Yes. And so it wasn't at that point uh, a Damascene conversion in the sense that I was going, oh, yippee. It was a conversion in the sense of, oh, bugger. Now I've got no choice. And so the following morning, um, all the cupboards were emptied, everything got thrown out, and I was a vegetarian overnight. Wow. And not particularly an enthusiastic one. It was simply that I couldn't, I couldn't square that circle for myself. I'm not going to kill sentient beings, the, the, the animals that I see and go, oh, aren't they lovely, mm, loving animals, and then at the same time killing them because they tasted good. It didn't make any sense to me. Yeah. So I, at this point, I have to really state that there is no sense of judgment. This is for me. Uh, and I, I, I don't want to proselytize about this. For, you know, for a, a great portion of my life, I didn't, uh, didn't take any of this to, into account. And so I won't try to persuade people. This is how it was for me. And then after a week, it changed because I'd always loved the countryside. I'd always had a sense of peace being there. But suddenly when I was walking in the country, I lived in London at the time, but when I was walking in the country, I suddenly felt a very powerful sense of being part of it and not a passive aggressor. Mm. And it just felt so wonderful. That, and it's a sense of gratitude and um, illumination that hasn't changed for me in, in more than 50 years. And so as far as overall well-being is concerned, then 
that really, I think, is the main thing. Um, I am also a supporter, along with Kalisha, of Aviva, uh, uh, who, uh, as you know or may not know, support give great support and education in that area. My partner is a yoga teacher, and she's been a yoga teacher for 40 years and, and actually studied with um, one of the great yogis in, in India. And so she knows this is not a weekend course that she's been on. This is somebody who really knows her business. And I just have a general sort of interest in well-being, and I could do it much better, you know. I like chips. I like fry-ups. I like eating late at night <laughs> and so on and so on. Um, but every now and again, I go, well, this is no good, and I'll have a purge, you know. And, uh, the thing is that I do know about well-being, and I know how to help myself and put myself right. I do take supplements, and I am interested in the workings of, and take responsibility for the workings yeah. of Well, me too. And I have to say that you don't seem to have aged. I'm not just saying it, but I'm sort of looking at you and thinking, you look exactly as you did indeed. And then <laughs> over the year. So if if that's, um, I would say that I'm a part-time vegetarian, but for my husband, I would quite happily, if I'm honest, uh, be, be veggie, you know, and to be married to a Cornishman. Uh, I think he would find it a bit strange if we didn't eat anything other than vegetables. But it's not, vegetarianism isn't just about vegetables. It's a bit of an 80s view, isn't it, that people have. And I know we've got veganism, but it's quite interesting that actually you've attributed that as being part of your well-being. And, and it really is quite interesting. And so I, I'm, I'm wondering if I'm not going to age, I might try and stick to it beyond January, February, which is my main... Um, Time. Do you think people could become part-time vegetarians or, or or vegans? Well, I think I think more and more people are. I mean, in 1971, if I didn't eat at home, I didn't eat. That was it. Oh right. Uh, and also, there there was a uh, you know we we I think in the vegetarian movement, if there is such a thing, one always imagined that it was going to be a gradual improvement, that there'll be gradual awareness. And then veganism came, and it happened suddenly. And, and now, far from not being able to find vegetarian stuff on a menu, you will find vegan stuff on a menu as a matter of course. It is now incredibly easy. Uh, and really, back in, 90, in the 1970s, you couldn't even find tofu. Occasionally, you could find tofu in a tin, which one did. There was also some really rather unpleasant things called sausalatus, which were tin sausages. I, God knows what they were made out of, but they were virtually, virtually tasteless. Um, now you can buy, I mean, the, Richmond, the people who make pork sausages, now make the greatest vegan sausages I've ever tasted. And as far as I can remember, from my 50, you know, 50 odd years of being a vegetarian, I might have forgotten. But as far as I can remember, they're exactly like pork sausages. So the, the, the kind of stuff that's available now is completely awesome. I believe there is um, a, a billionaire somewhere, I've forgotten his name now, but he is putting all of his resources into laboratory meat, which has never, ever been part of an animal but they're growing, growing it from cells. I'm not sure that I could go that far. 
But there are so many, so many of these arguments, the, and not to mention climate change, which is now at the top of so many agendas, you know. It's, uh, I think it's something like, uh, is it 86% of all mammals on Earth are farm, are farm animals? And that, of course, is a great consideration as we you know, continue talking about meat and eating meat. Um, yeah. Martin, can I move on a bit and ask you about books? Really, I'm interested in sort of a book that you've read maybe that has changed your life somehow um, that you can share with us uh, or what are you reading at the moment uh, and is it your favourite book? When I did Desert Island Discs, she was very, very kind to me because I said that uh, I said then, as of now, as now, my favourite book or books are written by James O'Brien, um, and he has been referred to, I think, by the Times as the the greatest historical author of all time. Yes, they but have. His, uh, his books, there are 20, I think there are 20 of them. So I don't know what the term is for a, a 20-ism, you know. You can't, you can go, you've got a trilogy, but then beyond that, he's written 20 consecutive books. Um, and I, I have read them all probably five times through the, through the whole 20. Um, and these are definitely my favourite books. Partly not only just for the, the acuity and depth of the characterization, but his use of English is just exquisite. And all of the books, whether I'm using the books and a pencil or whether I'm reading it on my iPad and, and highlighting them, there are phrases where you, of such elegance and accuracy where you think, as with Oscar Wilde, I wish I'd said that, you know, and I often do, as with Oscar Wilde. Um, I would say that was my favourite book. I do love books on spirituality, on, on all aspects of it, you know. So um, I like the, 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 the renditions of the poetry of Hafiz, um, of uh, the, the Masmar, Masnavi by Mulana Rum. So I am, I am attracted by Eastern spirituality, definitely. Interesting. And do you have a favourite legal character, um, whether from, I don't know, Grisham to Dickens, um, perhaps, or, or more appropriately, is there a legal character that you would like to play but haven't played? Mm. I've, I've adapted that a little bit. Um, and is there a play that you'd like to star in um, that you haven't appeared in? I think... We must, for me, uh, it always comes back to Thomas More, um, as, as, uh, and I think he does count as a legal character. And because it was such a joy for me to perform Man for All Seasons, not just for the character, because probably the, um, the, the story upon which Man for All Seasons was based is a bit of a hagiography. I don't know. I know Thomas More was quite capable of burning heretics, um, which is not mentioned in the play. No. Um, <laughs> as far as characters, I, I would love to play Rumpole. Uh, and I think there are, there are moves afoot to bring Rumpole back to the screen. But equally, there, there, there are rumours that Rumpole is going to be a woman next time. So um, 
I don't know whether I could qualify in that area. I, I think any, any accurately represented legal character would fascinate me. I mean, is it, is it uh, Jeffrey Robinson who goes all around the world, or did, um, defending people uh, who use our legal system and where he has right of audience? Uh, against the, 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 the death penalty, people who are sentenced to death in foreign countries, and he will go and try to save them from the death penalty. That is Jeffrey Robinson. It, it may well be. I'll, I'll double-check that I invite him on here. I mean, assuming that it was generally in the Commonwealth, because we would generally have a, a right of audience in most Commonwealth countries, but you yeah. may have audience of I mean, that's fascinating. I believe it. I believe so, because I've, I've, um, I've written uh, his autobiography, so I haven't written it at all. <laughs> There's hubris for you. No, I've read his autobiography. Uh, and I, I, I thought, now that would make the most wonderful television series. Um, so, yes, that, that I would really like to do, because um, he's, a, he's a, an extraordinary character and a, and a very great lawyer. I've made a note. I, I was also um, involved quite a, uh, I mean, a long, long time ago now. Do you remember a, a television series called World, World in Action in Granada, up in your, your area? Yes, I do. World in Action was a, was a, um, a, a documentary series, and it, it, it's gone now. So it's, it's been gone for some time. But it was investigative journalism at its absolute best. Yeah. And World in Action began an investigation into the conviction of the Birmingham Six, uh, resulting eventually in, in their um, acquittal on appeal. Yeah. And then a drama, there, there was a drama about the whole process in which I played the producer of World in Action um, and John Hurt played the MP, the Labour MP, responsible for bringing it to the attention of the government and the wider public. And it was, it was really one of the most exciting legal dramas that I'd been involved in because it was all true. Yes. Uh, especially one area of the drama. Because when I, when I read the script, I thought, I don't know how we're ever going to get this on the screen. Because there was a point, uh, and I was reading this in the script, there was a point where the producer of World in Action found in his pigeonhole in his office a brown envelope, and when he opened it, he found he, he had been given or leaked a special branch document, and on it were the names of the real bombers, none of whom were the ones who were in prison. Uh, and I thought, how the hell are we going to film this? When we actually did come to that part of the filming and reenacting what had happened to the World in Action producer, a man arrived with a briefcase chained to his waist with a chain coming down his sleeve and chained to the briefcase. They filmed me in mid-close-up, as I, as I kind of am now, to you. Yes. When it came to the point where I had to read the document to my partner in the studio, they cut. The man with the briefcase took out the pieces of paper from the briefcase, handed them in shot. They then rolled the cameras again. I read the names out, and then we cut and I handed him back to the man who went away. It was very profound and a, and a little bit scary. The, um, the other part that was interesting in the script was where, and this actually happened to the producer, and, um, when the, the first appeal was lost, 
uh, and that's the appalling Vista speech, which I'm sure you know about the, you know, yeah. the appeal. And the appeal was denied. And when we came to film that bit where the producer of the of World in Action received that news, he apparently broke down and cried in the car. Um, and so we're filming this scene and I'm sitting in the car waiting for the phone to ring for the result of the appeal. And the camera is right here by my right ear. Just as we were about to film, the producer director leaned into the car and she said, before you film this, I want you to read this. And she gave me a Christmas card, which had been cut in half. Um, uh, and then another bit of another card, taped to it. I'm sorry, that's my cat. <laughs> Can you hear my cat in the background? <laughs> and on it, written in pencil, was a message from one of the six who was still in prison. This card was handed to through the window, taped together and written in pencil. This message from one of the six said, we want to thank you for what you were doing for us and how whatever the outcome of this program is, we want you to know that we are all well and we all have God's greatest gift, a clear conscience. God bless you all. And then I handed it back and burst into tears, <laughs> which was exactly what was required for the program. And the producer director knew exactly what she was doing. Um, and it wasn't very long after that broadcast that the Birmingham Six, here he is, be quiet. I'm working, be quiet. It wasn't long after that the, uh, the Birmingham Six were successful in their second appeal. I feel quite emotional just hearing that because I know that feeling when the client says to you, thank you, in, in those sort of moments, the gratitude for doing what we sometimes feel like it's a, is a, it's a job but can evoke such emotion. And so for you to be reading, you know, the real card, I'm not surprised that you burst into tears. It's, it's quite an emotional, emotional thing, yeah. And not many people can say they've been involved in real cases like that. You know, no, to me, it, absolutely. It was, yeah. it, 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 it was, it was extraordinary and, and a very real privilege. And, you know, it, it did seem to do some work. Well, it didn't seem to. It did. <laughs> It was some yeah. good because um, finally the, the Birmingham Six were, were released. Wow, that's amazing. I, re I remember when they came out of court, but that's probably showing my age now, so we'll, maybe we'll leave it there for my, young, my younger listeners to look up. <laughs> <laughs> um, Martin, it's been so lovely talking to you and discussing your career and your link with us in the law. Uh, and long may it continue. I, I wonder what's next. You know, might there be a memoir, books, a film about your own life? We know well, I doubt very much if there'll be a, a film about my own life. I have enough trouble trying to get into films about other people's lives. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I've been incredibly privileged to work with some very great people. I worked with Laurence Olivier for a, a good while, and I have extraordinary anecdotes about him. I worked with John Gielgud and I have anecdotes about him, and John Mills and Michael Dennison and Dulcie Gray and all of those old theatrical greats. And I have so many wonderful stories. And when I tell them to my children, they, they say, Dad, you've got to write an autobiography. All of these wonderful anecdotes. And I know, I know it's there. I know it's in, in my head. And probably at some point when enforced 
retirement uh, arrives, I may well do. And in fact, I've, I've even started and I think I've written, oh, at least three paragraphs. Um, so <laughs> it's, it's there. It's there. And, and at some point, I hope it will arrive. Well, I very much look forward to read. Well, you must come to our book club. We always invite the author and there's a Q&A about parts of the book, um, usually hosted by me. So you, you must come on. I really look forward to it because I think, you know, you really have led the most fascinating life and you've portrayed our profession, uh, if I may say so very well and supported the good things about the profession such as Kalisher uh, and so I, I, I'm delighted that you came on this podcast but we are very grateful to you because um, access to justice uh, you know and equality and fairness is so very important in our job uh, yeah so and I must say Sally you know uh, um I don't know, it might probably sounds ingratiating, um, but, but I'm very grateful to you. Uh, and I think we, all of us should be, you know, to you and the rest of the legal profession. Um, it's so vital and so important and, and actually rather inspiring. So there really is a well, a well uh, a, a meaning and heartfelt thank you. Thank you so much. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cry now and I'll oh. be saying to my husband, <laughs> I know I'm totally emotional. Good, this is great. Uh, <laughs> we, are, we are meant to be feeling human beings. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, Martin Shaw, or I had to stop myself from calling you Judge throughout that interview. Uh, judge John Deed, thank you so much for um, coming to be interviewed on Talking Law with me. Thank you, Sally. Thank you very much. Huge thank you to Martin Shaw for talking law with me, Sally Penny, MBE. You can find out more about the Kalisha Trust and the wonderful work they do by heading to thekalishatrust.org. Please do catch up with our previous episodes of Talking Law, where you can hear many interviews, 54 episodes. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do share Talking Law with your friends or colleagues and do subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can also now listen to the Law and Guidance podcast, a brand new podcast which talks about the law. You can find me on Twitter at SallyPenny1. Please give me a follow. I'd love to hear from you. You can also follow the Women in Law UK on LinkedIn or Instagram or Facebook. Finally, don't forget the extensive resources for anyone working within the law by visiting our website, womeninthelawuk.com. Thanks to our production team, Sam Walker and Michael Blades at What Goes On Media. Bye for now. <laughs>